According to data from Statista.com, oil and gas companies spent $76 million lobbying our government in 2020. According to Climate Change Realty, if just three out of every 1,000 home buyers in America use Climate Change Realty to find their real estate agent, we could have donated more than $90 million to Citizens Climate Lobby so that they could lobby for nonpartisan climate policy. Welcome to the podcast. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. I've been I've been trying to cover this. I keep saying this every week. I've been trying to cover this topic for a while, and I'm really excited to have you here in particular. Well, great. I'm I'm glad you have me on. I love talking about bees, so it's a great opportunity. Yeah, and we need to talk about bees because the bees the bees are needing our help these days. But um, before we talk about the bees, I'd always love to talk about you, getting a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you are doing at the current moment. Okay, so right now I am a faculty member at a community college in Arizona, but I actually started working on conservation issues during undergraduate and then followed that up in my graduate career. So I actually started uh, studying primates. So it's it was an interesting transition from primates to insects. Um, I realized as I was going into my master's work, which was on ant metabolism, that if you are interested in science or conservation, it really doesn't matter what type of organism you're studying, right? Everything is so important. And insects in particular are so essential to ecosystem function. And they're not one of the more charismatic species, right? Some of my uh, friends in graduate school were studying elephants and, you know, we have the primates, but insects are something that can be studied anywhere. Conservation of insects is so important that that is why I got into that field. And we are in deep, deep trouble with insect conservation. I wonder if it's because people aren't as fond of insects. But um, so where, why, where did the transition come in from like, why did you start off by studying primates and then switch to, to insects to begin with? Well, it's funny. It was actually originally a logistical choice, right? <laughs> in that it's, it's harder to get funding to go to say South America or Africa to study primates. Um, for primatologists, funding is really difficult to come by. So I thought, okay, I'm going to reassess this and go for something that is a little bit easier to get uh, funds to support my research. Because let's face it, as scientists, funding is so important to what we do. So my transition came during my uh, master's work in Boston, where I changed my focus from primate conservation to looking at uh, ant metabolism and the role that ants play in the ecosystem. Right. So. As long as you don't have to, to study the, the greedy humans. As long as it's not <laughs> humans, we're good. Um, do you yeah. do you know much about like the evolutionary pathway of like insects and how we like split off from them? Like, I know we came from like the shrew is the idea back like when the dinosaurs went extinct. Do you know? And then insects probably go back even way way even further than oh, that. Yeah. How, do you do you know anything about that at all? I do know some about that. So bees in particular evolved from wasps and 
the uh, diversity of bees really exploded almost at the same time as the diversification of flowering plants. There's still debate over, you know, which came first, but they have a very symbiotic relationship. And so during that um, adaptive radiation or that explosion of flowering plants is when you started to see all the diversity of bees. But they, like I said, they did originally evolve from uh, wasps, which wasps are predatory for the most part, um, and use like meat and other insects to provision their young. So bees came from there. Hmm. All right. Very, very cool. So before we, yeah, so we're not going to talk about insects broadly, but I do want to mention quickly for anyone who's listening that insect biomass has decreased at a staggering rate in the last 20 to 30 years. Like if there's a hundred pounds of insects on the planet, we're now down to like 30 pounds worth of insects. If oh, you want yeah. to put it in pounds, it's really, really bad, scary. Like one of the scariest statistics I've ever seen because they're so essential to the ecosystem. So we're going to specifically focus on talking about pollinators and then bees in particular on this podcast. Yes. But before we do, can you kind of explain what a pollinator is and what role they play in like regulating ecological or biological systems that we are an essential part of, of course, as well? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, plants undergo sexual reproduction. They can reproduce asexually, but for the most part, it's sexual reproduction. And a lot of people don't know that. But we're still talking about fertilization. Sperm and egg are fertilized, which forms uh, seed and fruit. So pollinators carry the pollen, which contains sperm from the male part of a flower to the female part of a flower, preferably on a different flower, right? But the same plant species. So they're taking pollen from one flower and depositing it on this kind of receptacle um, on another flower. And that is when the sperm are released, fertilize the egg. So most people think of, I would say, hummingbirds or maybe butterflies when they think of pollinators, but bees are the most important pollinators. And the reason for that is that bees actually collect pollen and they make a little pollen ball and lay their egg on it. And when the egg develops into a larva, it consumes the pollen ball. Whereas other pollinators, they just happen to get pollen on their bodies and carry it to another flower when they're feeding on, say, nectar. So bees are by far the most important pollinators on the planet. And so flowers are different than like trees, right? So if like the bees all died, we wouldn't lose our trees, would we? Well, there are a lot of trees of flower. So actually we would lose, we would see a total breakdown of our plant communities if we lost bees. So something like 85% of our flowering plants in our plant communities are pollinated by bees. And then we also have, like take for instance, um, almond orchards. Almonds grows on trees and those are pollinated by bees, right? We also have apples all kinds of trees are dependent on bees for pollinators. So no, we would see a total collapse of our plant communities and that would have a 
an effect that would carry throughout the ecosystem. We would lose birds, we would lose um, mammals and reptiles, everything that depends on a diverse and structured plant community. So flowering plants are particularly interesting to people because that's where we get up most, a lot of our food from is what it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. So one out of every three bites of food that we have as humans comes from a food crop that is pollinated by bees. Now, when you look at food crops, most of our food crops, you increase what they call seed set or yield when you have a variety of bee pollinators. So seed set would just be how many seeds actually turn into fruit, right? Um, or how many like flowers are pollinated. So even if a bee does not directly pollinate a food crop for humans, it's going to pollinate, say, alfalfa that we depend on for feeding cows. So that's why I say one out of every three bites that we take is from food that is dependent on pollination by bees. Yeah. So, so bees are obviously super essential. How did you go from studying ants to getting specifically focused on researching bees? So that's a good question. So I did my master's in Boston and then I went out to California to do my uh, PhD research and my advisor was fine with me me working on ants, but he was so passionate about bees. I mean, this guy is all about bees and so knowledgeable. He's like your old school naturalist that he really piqued my interest in pollination and conservation of pollinators. So it was really like a no brainer for me. As soon as I got over there, I saw what the work was all about. I started to learn about bees. I switched over immediately. Not that ants aren't important, but um, bees are so, so essential. They're what we call a keystone group, meaning that they affect so many other organisms in an ecosystem that if you lose them, the ecosystem starts to unravel. And so I've always wanted to be involved in conservation. You know, first it was primate conservation, but after I realized any conservation is valuable, I switched over to bees almost immediately upon getting to California. Where does this like strong desire to work on conservation come from, do you think? So I have always wanted to work in the field of conservation since I was really young. And what really got me started on it, back to primates, was reading about Jane Goodall, who to this day is pretty much like by idol, right? She is the epitome of the conservation scientist because she can bridge the differences that people have, right? Even if you're on two sides of an issue and help people reach a compromise. So getting back to that, I started to read about Jane Goodall and became so fascinated with conservation. I've always loved animals. I have always loved nature. And so it was such a perfect fit for me because I've always wanted to make a difference in the world. So don't we all, I, I, I love yeah. that. Um, what, are, what are we currently seeing as far as trends in bee population specifically here in the USA at the moment? So that is a good question. Um, one group of bees, so we have bumblebees 
you know, across the, the globe, we have many species of bumblebees. And what's significant about uh, bumblebees is they are the only, we call them wild bees or native bees. They are the only wild bees in North America that nest in a hive. Now, everybody's used to the honeybee, right? They have the hives and they're really cool and they do the bee dance, but they are from Europe. They're the European honeybee. That's what we have here in the U.S. So our wild bees, bumblebees, are the only hive nesters. And the reason that I mention that is they are the most studied. They're, you know, easier to study. You find a hive, it has a ton of bumblebees. And what we have noticed is a huge, unprecedented decline in bumblebee populations. So I believe it is um, since 1990, we have seen a steady decline in diversity and abundance. And just speaking um, from my own observations, so I have been engaged in uh, pollinator research here in Arizona in urban Phoenix for quite a few years now. I used to see bumblebees everywhere. Our, um, Sonoran bumblebee, and I have not seen it for several years now, which is disturbing. So we are seeing a decline in bumblebee species throughout North America. Now, here in Arizona, surprisingly, we have about a thousand species of bees that are native to this region in the Sonoran Desert. Now, we know that they're declining but quantifying the decline has been very difficult because of a lack of funding, uh, because of a, a lack of long-term data sets, right? Monitoring year after year after year. Um, these have, and this, is, this applies to all regions, but this has limited our ability to look at the decline of bee populations in North America. Like I say, we know it's happening, but we're not quite sure which groups are disappearing um, and how fast. So what you're talking about is there's two different types. Well, there's a lots of different species of bees, but you're talking about wild bees disappearing. And that would be as opposed to bees in captivity. What's, what's the difference yes. there? Good question. Uh, that's opposed to honeybees. Now, I know that we have a huge beekeeping group in Arizona, in North America. And in terms of honeybees, we've lost 45% of our honeybee hives just between uh, April 2020 to April 2021. What? So we are also seeing a huge issue with maintaining honeybee hives. Oh yeah, it's it's been, it's pretty much unprecedented. I mean, we've seen it before, but not to this extent. And those are under the control of people. People are beekeeping yes. and we're seeing them decrease just 20% in a year. And that's, that's yes. globally, did you say, or nationwide? Uh, that would be nationwide. That's okay. our North American colonies. And so these are, so the way that honeybee hives work is the hives are kept by some groups in say Florida, and then they are driven in trucks and they're deposited across the East Coast, up along the North and then down on the West Coast, right? So they kind of travel that way and these hives are supplied to farmers who are growing crops, right? They pay for them, put so many hives in their fields and the honeybees go out and pollinate. So that is where we're seeing the decline. Farmers are putting these hives out by their fields and they come out and most of the worker bees are dead and maybe there's a queen remaining. 
So. Hold on a second. It's it. You know, we also saw a decrease in the supply of lumber and different things between April of 2020 mm-hmm. and 2021. So it very well yes. may be related to a, this the human supply chain. So that that that's well, we don't. I don't know. I just that's just what came to my mind. So can you tell me a bit about the research that you're currently doing and what is what's the goal of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I'm currently doing, as I mentioned, I work at a community college. And I am developing what is called a cure or course-based undergraduate research experience for my students um, to engage them in real science. The data that they collect in my class on bees is going to be used to advise us on creating urban pollinator habitats. And also we're going to use it to monitor long-term changes in urban bees. So I teach an environmental biology class and my students are going to spend most of the semester documenting bees and their floral hosts. So going around in their neighborhoods or parks or wherever there's a lot of different flowers, monitoring what bees they see on which flowers. And so that is one of my main research projects because Like I said before, one of the problems with looking at the decline of bees is we just don't monitor it year to year to year. And there's a lot of variation in bee populations just naturally. So we need to monitor five, 10 years, 15 years to see what's going on there. And so my students at Gateway are going to be collecting data every semester for, you know, as long as I can keep this program going. And then um, part of my research is to collaborate with some community colleges in California to create even larger database so that we can start to look at trends um, with bee communities in urban areas from different regions. Yeah. So one of the interesting ideas is about um, integrating nature into like a more urban lifestyle. Now, there are people who talk about living roofs and there are those who are growing food indoors. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to this idea of urban bee ecology versus the more wild forest bees and like, yeah, yeah just kind of explain the, the difference and what, what you're learning about it yeah. so far. Yeah, definitely. So urban bee ecology is my main focus. So before I really get into uh the specific of urban bee ecology, I wanted to just provide a few facts about bee ecology in general, because it applies to this discussion. So first of all, like I said, most people know about the honeybee, they're hive nesters, but it's something like 80% of all wild bee species nest in the ground. And most of them are solitary. One female, she provisions her nest and she dies. Right. So these females are alive for a season, which is a lot different than, say, honeybees or even bumblebees. So mostly we have ground nesters. We have a few uh, species of what we call cavity nesters, like the big black carpenter bee you see flying around. Um, So when I talk about urban ecology, what I mean, or urban bee ecology, is looking at how Urbanization, say the density of human dwellings and how different habits of the urban population, how they affect bee communities. So for instance, what type of landscaping are people using? Is it grass lawns? Is it here in the Southwest, xeric landscaping, right? A lot of desert bushes and shrubs and stuff like that. Are people using pesticides and herbicides around their homes? 
how far are these bees removed from a natural habitat? So these are the things that I look at when I study urban bee ecology. Um, so there's bees sting people. So when we talk about <laughs> integrating bees into like our urban like world, I mean, how would we even go about doing that? And I'm I'm curious. We're we're talking about bees. They're great. Right, what do what do wasps do? And like, do they provide any benefit or can we kill the wasp nests and keep the bees nests? Like, I don't know. Right. A lot of people want to kill the wasp nest. <laughs> so uh, you brought up two, two really good uh, questions. What about bees? They sting people. I have actually found quite a bit of opposition to supporting bee communities in urban areas because of that. Either people are worried about liability, say if it's a park or something like that, or, you know, maybe people just don't want a stinging insect or around their home. But what I have found, um, so when I collect data, I'm walking around, there's bees everywhere, I'm walking through the bushes. I have never been stung that way. I should, I caught a bee in my hand once, then I got stung, but I didn't want, it was a really cool bee, didn't want it to get away, didn't have my net, so I described it. So <laughs> yeah, I got stung then. <laughs> but um, for the most part, bees are looking for pollen and nectar and in the case of honeybees, they die once they sting someone. Now that doesn't happen with wild bees. They do not die from stinging someone. Um, and so in my opinion, the risk of being stung is pretty low. I mean, don't put them in your hand. Don't grab them with your hand. Other than that, the bees want to do their thing. They don't want to be stinging people. Now, regarding wasps, wasps, every, every organism has some part to play in the ecosystem, even mosquitoes, right? Everybody hates mosquitoes and I'm not saying we should keep them around necessarily, but um, wasps are predatory, like I said, and we have a huge diversity of wasps um, and they do limited pollination. So they visit flowers for nectar and they don't have a lot of hair on their body, but sometimes pollen grains get stuck and they take them over to another flower. So they do perform a little bit of pollination, but they're also important in keeping the populations of other insects in check. So for instance, we have a lot of pests that attack our crops, right? And one way to control these, if you don't want to use pesticide, which really isn't that effective, right? Because the pests become, um, what's the word, acclimated and then the pesticides don't kill them. So one way to deal with that is to introduce predatory wasps into your crops that prey on those pests. So they are essential in keeping some of these populations from expanding out of control. Well, the Mufasa was right. The Lion King, they know what's up. The circle of life, everything's got a purpose. Yep. Everything's here for a reason. It's interesting. <laughs> and one thing I want to say is um, we don't go outside and grab squirrels or grab deer. You know, it's not that big a deal <laughs> to right. like not grab a wild animal if it's living in your, you know, your, your, uh, your lawn and helping you out. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. And thank you for sharing that on the wasps as well. That's pretty valuable. Um, how, how would we go about either integrating bees into more urban communities like cities or su suburban sprawl? And um, what are we doing now that's like preventing them from thriving? 
That's a really good question and one that I am really passionate about answering for community groups. There are several things that we can do to support or integrate bees into our urban areas. So first of all, I have been working with some uh, colleagues on developing guidelines for creating pollinator gardens. So people can take their front yard, their backyard, and put gardens in that support these pollinators. And I'm not talking just about bees. If you want butterflies, you can put plants in that attract butterflies. But what you need to do is focus on native plants, native to the region, because the pollinators are looking for native plants. Those are what they're attracted to, right? They're kind of in sync with each other. So native plants don't use pesticides and herbicides. If I could give any advice, it would be to stop using those things in your yards. Um, the other thing, and not a lot of people think about this, is bees need places to nest. Now, large bees, a honeybee, a bumblebee, a carpenter bee, they can fly miles when they're foraging. But we have so many little bees. We have one of the smallest bees in the world here in Arizona. It is 0.1 of an inch long. I mean, it, it looks like a tiny, tiny little gnat. My point being that these do not fly very far when they're foraging. I mean, we're talking like, I don't know, 10, 20 feet off. So you need to provide nesting habitat for these bees in the pollinator gardens. If you do not provide nesting habitat, you are not going to support the bee communities. And what that means is no mulch. Absolutely do not use mulch in your garden. Or if you are going to use mulch, try to restrict it to small areas. You need to leave patches of bare soil. That is where our ground nesters want to be. Um, it's even good if you build like those little soil berms to keep the water in by the plants. They love to nest um, on the slope. Also, you can leave like even a, a brick wall where there's little holes around the bricks. Bees, I've seen tons of bees nest in those areas. So to integrate bees into our urban areas and to support the communities, we should be planting pollinator gardens. Um, and even if you don't want to plant a pollinator garden, just limiting the use of pesticides and herbicides, that would be a great place to start as well. What is mulch? So that's a good question. Mulch is like this fibrous plant material that you put on top of the soil to help retain water in the soil so that it doesn't evaporate. Mm -hmm. And the bees, it could also be like, I think they use wood chips, bark, things like that. But bees cannot get to the soil and nest when there's a layer of mulch on top of the soil. So is it mostly made of dead trees mulch or or what what is it mostly comprised of and does it contribute to the soil health at all? That's a good question. I think the type of mulch varies, but yeah, a lot of times it's wood chips or bark, but a lot of times it's this fibrous matter and it contributes to soil health because it maintains a certain moisture in the soil. Mm -hmm. However, if you look at different regions like Arizona, we have clay soil and our plants are adapted to that type of soil, right? They don't need a lot of mulch. So if you are planting native plants, you shouldn't need that. It's when people put things like marigolds or you know these ornamentals they put this layer of plant matter 
like I said, like fibrous plant matter over the top of the soil to keep that moisture in. And the mulch is used is mostly used for like aesthetic purposes, I suppose, or specifically like retaining moisture. And if we didn't retain the moisture, the soil would dry out or, or what? I imagine it's probably used for aesthetics as well. Um, but yeah, mostly it's to retain the moisture in the soil. And do you know how long ago we started using these pesticides and herbicides? Oh, we started using pesticides and herbicides, I believe, like the uh, early 20th century. And okay. But what happened with pesticides and herbicides is, I don't know um, if you've heard of Rachel Carson, but she wrote what was a revolutionary environmental book called Silent Spring. I believe that, that was in the 1960s, I want to say. And she talked about the use of DDT, which is one of our pesticides we used extensively and which is now banned in the US and Europe. But she talked about the fact that it was killing everything. It was like insect annihilation, right? Also, it was weakening the eggshells of birds, uh, primarily like birds of prey. And so that's what almost drove the bald eagle extinct. But when Rachel Carson wrote The Silent Spring and came out with all of these observations, people were like, oh, shit, you know, we're killing everything. And that is when we started to reevaluate our use of pesticides somewhat. Um, and actually, this doesn't totally pertain to your question, but a little bit. Um, buying organic foods. It, it, you know, in terms of health uh, benefits, it's a little bit, you know, controversial. Some people say it's good. Some people say it doesn't matter. By people, I mean scientists. But um, buying organic produce and organic foods is very helpful to our ecosystems because they are uh, grown with very few pesticides and herbicides. They still use some that are naturally derived, but... Uh, it's not nearly as damaging to our insect communities as crops that where they apply a lot of pesticides. Geez, Jennifer, now I need to do an organic episode because I, I'm, oh, I, yeah. I, thought, I thought it was healthier. Um, these pesticides and herbicides, I don't, I had never talked to any environmentalist who's like, yeah, they're great. Let's use more. Um, we, we, right. we do, we do such silly things for, for short-term benefits. Uh, people just can't look down the line to like a full, um, ecosystem analysis of like, how can we increase the, the livelihood of every single living being in the area? I, don't, I, I like looking at things that way. As far oh, yeah. as, um, uh, uh, bee farms. So th that would be like honeybees. Like how does mm -hmm. that exactly work? And can we sustain that down the line? Or are we going to continue to see losses like we did between April 2020 and 2021? Could you speak a bit on that? Sure. Um, so bee farms, primarily talking about honeybees, although we do raise uh, what's called a mason bee that you can buy as well. But honeybee farms, they will continue to exist if they make certain changes. And there's been a move in the beekeeping community to make these changes. Now I'm not talking about your backyard beekeeper, right? I'm talking about the farms that then sell the hives to farmers. So in the past, um, the bees were not given proper nutrition. And so this weakens their immune system. Hauling them around the country weakens their immune system. Pesticides and herbicides 
do that as well. And then what is causing what we call colony collapse disorder is an infection by a mite and it is causing uh, paralysis of the worker bees as they're out foraging. So if we address some of these issues like the use of pesticides, or uh, we start to use better, I guess you would call it husbandry techniques, then yes, I think we can sustain bee farming, but these changes have to be made. And how does the health of pollinators relate to issues like climate change? Um, we're starting to see some changes in the way things work, pretty staggering changes depending on who you are and the way you look at it. Um, and I, yeah, I guess in the last 20 years, we've seen significant decreases in insect population. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the connection between the changing climate and the health of pollinators as well. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. And I have several thoughts about that. So first of all, climate change is affecting everything, every aspect of our ecosystems. And maybe it doesn't kill out some, you know, different groups of organisms, but they will shift locations, they'll shift habitats, their population sizes will change. So climate change is this pervasive, has this effect that spreads across all organisms. But when you talk about climate change and pollinators, we are scrambling as bee biologists or in the conservation community to monitor these populations and try to figure out, okay, what is climate change doing? What can we definitively say about climate change and pollinator populations? I mean, there's so many variables in monitoring something like this, but there are a few things that we do know so bees, like I told you, they nest in the ground. They tend to emerge when their favored floral hosts flower. And there's different, you know, signals like temperature, humidity, things like that. But when we get climate change and it changes the plant communities, because maybe, you know, for instance, Arizona is getting warmer. So a lot of our plants can't persist in the higher temperatures. So when you change the plant communities, bees are emerging, but their floral hosts are no longer present. And so they don't provision their uh, eggs as well as they could have otherwise. So they're out of sync. Flowering is out of sync with the emergence. So we are seeing that. Also, there's going to be a shift, an overall shift in habitat structure in general. I mean, we're talking about a lot of organisms that can't tolerate as much heat are going to start to move to either higher elevations or their range is going to expand into cooler areas. And so that is just changing all the dynamics of the ecosystem. And like I said, being able to quantify that with regards to bee populations is difficult. However, we can look at correlations. As temperatures rise, bee populations start to decline. Now, some bee species may increase in number, but the general trend is a decline in both number of bees and bee diversity, like number of bee species. And if we're interested in continuing to have flowering plants pollinated, that's a, it's a bad sign. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So what's sad about the climate change thing for me in particular, someone who um, really sees every single living being in our, on earth as innately valuable is that 
humans are the most adaptable species that has ever lived. So we can adapt to a changing environment pretty well, but I'm not sure how a bee species or a squirrel or a deer or other animals um, are going to do. And the data is showing that they're, um, they're just going to die. So I, that makes me mm-hmm. really upset and I really am bothered by the, the mass extinction potential. So that's oh, why yes. I like to talk about this kind of stuff to see if we can do, if we can, if it means um, don't use mulch, you know, it's not that big a sacrifice to give up mulch right. to like have almonds and bees and, you know, maybe other, I don't yeah. know what other, other, you know, what, what else like, and birds eat bees or something, right? Right. Birds eat bees. And uh, I mean, really, it comes down to changes in the plant community that we would see in the absence of bees and also our food crops. Right. We all want to eat. If we lose our bees, what are we going to do out there hand pollinating with a paintbrush? Right. Pollen from one flower, put it on another flower. And they have to do that in some regions and other parts of the world because their bee populations have declined so much. Now, another thing I wanted to mention just regarding climate change is so bees, we have what we call specialist bees and generalist bees. So a specialist bee only goes to one or a few species of plants. Like, for instance, we have a bee here in Arizona. It's called the sunflower bee, but I see it on sunflowers and I also see it on this uh, desert mallow or kind of looks like a poppy flower. So if we lose those plants, we lose that bee. And so what you're going to start seeing with climate change is this gradual unraveling of our bee communities. We're gonna lose those specialists because we're losing the plants. And that's going to just decrease the complexity of these communities. What are the, some of the best actions that individuals can take to support bees and pollinator and insect health uh, in their daily lives? Well, like I said, um, I I would say landscape with pollinators in mind. Like personally, when I go to landscape my yard, I think, okay, is that a native plant? And how good is it for pollinators? I know here in Arizona, you see oleanders everywhere. And first of all, it's toxic. They're a toxic plant, but they do absolutely nothing for pollinators. Pollinators do not touch them. Yet it is a landscaping plant. It's sold in every nursery. You see it everywhere. So I think a shift in our thinking, right? Everybody wants that pretty flower garden. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people want that pretty flower garden. I like pretty flowers. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Like marigolds, they're so popular. Marigolds are uh, like a hybrid. They are basically raised by the nurseries. And when you do that, you decrease the amount of pollen and nectar in the plants, right? They're bred for pretty flowers. They're not bred for resources for pollinators. So if you're gonna plant uh, marigolds in your garden, you are not going to support pollinators. So I would urge everyone to become educated on the plants that belong in their region and to use those in your yards rather than what we call ornamentals that you get from the nurseries. So I think a shift in thinking right? Urban areas can harbor diverse animal communities. They can, you you can promote conservation in urban areas much more than we ever thought. We used to ignore urban areas like, oh, those are like, you know, wastelands. You don't have any organisms there, but that's not true. And if people do pollinator gardens, you're creating a pathway, what we call a pollinator pathway, So if you have natural habitats and then you have your urban area in between with a lot of gardens, 
the pollinators can go from garden to garden and make it to the other side, right? You're supplementing those communities in natural habitats. So that is my first piece of advice for community members that want to support pollinator populations. And then, like I said, don't use pesticides and herbicides and think about where bees nest and how you can improve that. Yeah. And it's also relating back to the climate change thing. It almost seems um, just as essential. It just connects back to everything. If you're looking to be promoting life or conservation, this Holocene epoch, which I mentioned earlier, where we can reliably um, account for fall, spring, summer, winter. That's when, that's when once we figured out that that was going to happen, we started doing farming. And I'm sure that right. other animals that have evolved have been able to count on these four seasons. This plant grows mm-hmm. when this happens and the bees are able to use them. So being able to keep yes. things in a state of equilibrium will promote life generally. And I think there's a lot, a lot to what you're saying about, um, there's an untapped opportunity, not just in specifically urban areas like cities, but suburbs for us to use the land around us to cultivate mm-hmm. more life and put things back in a state of equilibrium. Because every time you grow a plant, it is sequestering carbon. So there's a huge opportunity yes. there. Um, that's why I, I like talking to people about um, permaculture or, or you growing food on their lawn. Mm-hmm. Um Jennifer, can you speak a bit about this idea of uh, citizen science and what it kind of means to you? I am a huge fan of citizen science. So citizen science refers to members of the public who are not employed as scientists. They participate in research. So either they go out and collect data or they analyze data. So they are contributing to scientific studies. It's a very meaningful work. And a lot of people find it very fulfilling. There are so many citizen scientist projects everywhere, every city. You can do what they call a fish count, where once a year they go out and count all the fish. You know, and this obviously is for people who love to fish or whatever, but you count all the fish <laughs> you see and you count the numbers. There is the, uh, I think it's called the Great Sunflower Project, where they send you sunflowers that are native to your region. You plant them and grow them and monitor the pollinators that come to them. And so what you're doing is collecting data so that we can look at these broader trends. And it is so, so important for the scientific field. I can't stress it enough. Funds are limited. It is so hard for us to get funding to conduct research year after year. And so if I can employ, by employ, I mean just get people to participate. I'm not paying people. Um, If I can get people to participate in a project like monitoring bees through urban areas, and I don't have to pay, but I'm still getting all this data, well, obviously I can conduct my study for a longer duration, which is what we need. Also, the other benefit of citizen scientists is you are teaching people about the world around them, right? People are leaving these projects fully invested in conservation. And ultimately, as an educator and a researcher, that has always been a huge, huge focus of mine. How do I do outreach? How do I instill this passion or maybe ignite this passion in other people? Because that is what is going to help us fight climate change, fight the loss of insects and the loss of organisms. We need to be on the same page. We need to be passionate about these causes. And that's what citizen scientist does, in my opinion. Definitely. 
I wonder if there's a way we could uh, create some kind of monetary incentive, like some sort of nature NFT or some weird stuff. You know, no, the, the financial yeah. markets are always moving around and doing interesting things. And I'm always thinking about how to get money into the hands of people who are doing amazing work. And um, as we've learned in the digital age, there's kind of no, no um, asset more valuable than data. Now, that could be human mm-hmm. data or that could be the data of other living organisms around the, the uh, planet. But uh, thank you for sharing on that. I, I think that I think that's great. I agree. Um, it's it's almost silly how we um, how we allocate our funding at the moment. How we move money into the <laughs> hands of people who who manage money rather than in the hands of scientists or teachers like yourself. But I appreciate what you're doing, Jennifer. Thank you for doing your research. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Do you have any pon- final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about kind of preserving our natural environment, keeping us in this lovely, lovely Holocene that we all want to stay in forever? Yes. It's so nice. <laughs> There's snow and everything. It's great. Right. Absolutely. So I um, also work with high school students some, and I, to, to, to the passionate student, what I have to say is get involved right? You don't need to be a scientist. You don't need to be in college. Anyone can get involved. So if you are passionate about conservation, get involved, learn about things that interest you, do think, volunteer, do things that are contributing to the cause, participate in citizen science. And then also there are are universities working on this. There's community colleges. You can get education at any level to go out into the conservation field. And so I would urge people who are passionate about this, find the aspect that really, really interests you and stick with it. Yeah, that's always the trend, guys. You want to do something, like make a difference, you just do it. I mean, that's it. You just go out and you do something. You don't have to just watch TV. But um, Jennifer, I appreciate your time. I appreciate what you're doing. And thanks so much again. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right, everybody, and we'll see you. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.